just going to run this dog to see if we can find any type of uh, human remains that are left. Listen to Where Secrets Go to Die, The Disappearance of Derek Hennigan. From the Detroit Free Press, a new podcast set in the woods of Michigan's Upper Peninsula. Available on Apple, Spotify, Freep.com, or wherever you get your podcasts. We always hear about working the categories and setting lineups, but how? I'll ask Ariel Cohen about that and a whole lot more next on Baseball HQ Radio. Learn to play the winner's way, because Baseball HQ Radio starts right now. And here's your host from BaseballHQ.com, columnist Patrick Davitt. And welcome to Baseball HQ Radio for Friday, August the 11th. It's show number 30 of the 2023 fantasy baseball season. I am Patrick Davitt, your host, and we do have another great Friday full edition for you. We'll have a two-part feature expert interview with Ariel Cohen from Rotographs, the Beat the Shift podcast, and the ATC player projection and valuation systems. In part one, we'll discuss rest-of-season player projections and how to use them to work the categories. And then in part two, Ariel and I will talk about setting lineups effectively, performing player analysis, and he'll have some boons and banes for the rest of the season. We'll also have our weekly fantasy news update. Ray is taking a well-earned vacation down there hobnobbing with the rest of the elite on the Cape. And since I forgot to line up a replacement, not that Ray could ever be replaced, I'll take over and look at American League hitters, including Cleveland outfielder Ramon Laureano and Boston shortstop Trevor Story, and American League pitchers, including Oakland right-hander Luis Medina and Boston lefty Chris Sale. Then we'll move over to the National League with hitter news, including Mets third baseman Brett Beatty and the Mets infield, and Chicago second baseman shortstop Nico Horner, and finally some National League pitchers, including right-hander Paul Sewald and the Arizona bullpen, and Giovanni Gallegos and the St. Louis bullpen. We'll also have some regular commentaries from the guys at BaseballHQ.com, the best fantasy baseball website in the business. Rob Gordon is away from the mic this week, so I'll step in there as well. And I'll have a look at Samuel Basallo, a low minors prospect in the Baltimore system. In the frequent flyer, Baseball HQ analyst Alex Becky will look at Milwaukee right-handed reliever Abner Uribe. You might have seen some YouTube video on this guy. And in extra innings, well, I'll already have done the news and the minor league minute. So I figure you've heard enough from me already, so I'll spend my extra innings time gargling honey tea to repair my aching voice. It's another Big Friday Full Edition. Thanks for joining us at Baseball HQ Radio. Hey, what do you say? We got Ariel Cohen to stop by, so we gotta talk some baseball. And in the first inning of this Friday Full Edition, part one of our feature expert interview with Ariel Cohen from Rotographs, the Beat the Shift podcast, and the ATC Player Projection and Valuation Systems. Ariel, welcome back to Baseball HQ Radio. Oh, thanks so much for having me, Patrick. How are you? I'm doing well, thank you. How are you? Doing great. It's the uh, dog days of summer, and uh, can't wait to talk some fantasy baseball. Do you know why they called them the dog days? Yeah, because uh, the Constellation uh, Sirius now shows up uh, late in the uh, evening, uh, because at the end of the summer, now you're getting into the win- winter constellations. And uh, I, I think that's what, do I have that correct? 
That's right. Uh, Sirius is the dog star. And then next month, it'll be the Constellation XM. It's weird how that works. How many drafts are you playing this year and how are your teams doing? So I'm in six different leagues. All of them were auctioned other than TGFBI. Um, TGFBI, I'm middle of the pack. Uh, I'm in one home slash expert league, GDD, that I'm just doing terrible. I, I do that with Derek Hardy. I don't know what happened to that team. Just bad luck. But otherwise, I'm doing pretty good. Tout Wars, head-to-head, I'm in third place, but first in the overall points. Labor, I'm in third place, just a point out of second, although Ray Murphy is absolutely dominating the lead. He, the league. He has a 30-point lead, and he's going to run away with that. And I'm in third place in the NFBC Auction Championship. It's uh, it's going to be close. I'm just uh, 10 points out of first, so we'll see what happens there. And that last one you mentioned uh, in the NFBC, that's for real money. Yes, that is for real money. Uh, there is a big overall prize, although I always shoot for the uh, just the league title at least. I mean, you got to first win your league to really win the overall. Uh, but yeah, it's, uh, it's a nice 7500 bucks or whatever it is. Uh, so wish me luck, Patrick. Oh, of course I do. Uh, that's interesting that you say that you focus more on the league than on the overall. I've always thought that was the best way to approach those kind of uh, combined leagues where you're playing your own league, which has a cash prize, and then you're also shooting for the big overall prize. And I know lots of people say, no, I'm always shooting for the overall. Uh, everybody I know who plays in the NFPC is looking at it that way. But I think your chances of winning the overall are relatively small, even if you're terrific at playing the game, because I think your skill can get you up to the top, you know, 10% or so, but it's luck that takes you the rest of the way. You've got to have that just good fortune that puts you over the top and gets you into first place. And I think I'd rather rely on skill to win the league and I'll let luck take care of the rest. Yeah, I mean, you want to do your best to do what you can control. And to me, the league is something you can more control. To win the overall, you've got to be good and you got to get a little bit lucky. So at least you got to do the number one point first. If you think about all your fantasy teams, Ariel, which uh, of your hitters really has stood out for you this year? So I'm going to say, I'm going to say Freddie Freeman. Um, you know, if you remember at First Pitch Arizona last year, I made the case for Freddie Freeman to be a top five roto player. Um, it's it's not about the upside. It's about the high floor. And it's about the year after year consistency of first round or near first round play for him. I mean, a, a near guaranteed $30 player to me is worth a top five round pick. Acuna, okay, that's something else. The upside is tremendous and the stability is there. But Freddie Freeman, to me, was a top five pick. And, you know, you, knew, you always knew about the average. You knew about the run production. And you know he gets uh, 25 to 35 homers a year. And now he's added stolen bases. He's actually a $50 player, if you do the math. Uh, I own him in a lot of leagues. Um, and to me, the, the reason why I picked him is that that is a strategy that worked out. I, I could have answered you by saying, oh, I have Tyro Estrada. He had a great season. Where Yandy Diaz, who was the number one bargain projected by ATC, and he's really done it. But to me, the big strategy point is is that risk in the first round. And uh, I'm proud that I picked Freddie Freeman in a lot of leagues, and uh, he's definitely paid off for me. It's one of those situations where a lot of people who ended up with Freddie Freeman 
probably did so because they picked well down in the first round. He was most, more like a 12th, 13th round, uh, 12th, 13th pick, maybe even falling into the second round in a few drafts. So in a way you were lucky if you fell to that later part of the draft, because there's a lot of duds in the earlier part. Yeah. If you were interested in Freddie Freeman, if you would have picked eighth, ninth, 10th, 11th, then you could have swooped him in and gotten him at a much later than what I thought he was worth. Right. Um, in, an, in an auction, we're talking a $33 pick would win him, and I want him in a bunch of leagues uh, because, to me, he could have been a $40 player if you really thought about it. Uh, but getting that extra $7 bargain, oh, man, that's fantastic. And, and that's really what it is. I mean, it, you can get a $3 bargain, a $5 bargain on a player, but if you're getting a $5, 6 $7 per, uh, bargain potentially on a first-round player, that, that, that's really the game-changer in my opinion. You know, when uh, Todd Zola, Ray Murphy, and I do our roundtable editions uh, halfway through the year, at the end of the year, one of the things we do is who's the most valuable fantasy player this year. And my technique for figuring that out is, of course, we're all interested in bargains, but, I, but what I do is I add the bargain value to the production. So I want a guy who got a lot of production and created a bargain, and if you combine those two things then you end up with uh, the kind of player I think Freddie Freeman's going to be way up on the top of that list this year because relative to his cost, he's quite a, an, an excellent player, but on his own, he's an excellent player. So you get the best of both worlds. Yeah. I mean, to me, there's a little bit of a curve in terms of seeking out success. If you buy a $2 player, you know, if you only make $3 from him, that to me is not successful. You know, you have to really make five, six dollars on a one dollar player. If you're in the middle and you're buying a seventeen dollar player, all right, one, two dollars is pretty good. And at the top, actually, if you buy a thirty-five dollar player, to me, actually, if they return a thirty dollar value, that's success in and of itself, right? The curve goes up and and even negative at the top as far as the profit I'm I'm willing to make on him. So, uh, yeah, you can't just take the straight dollar profit. It really is a part of a, a success curve, if you will. How about a pitcher who's been really successful across your teams? I'm going to go with uh, Chris Bassett. Uh, Bassett was ranked 22nd in Major League Baseball last year with a little bit over 181 innings. He's a, he was a top 25 innings pitcher, let's say. Um, and if you actually look at innings, her game started, he's actually almost 15th. Um, I projected him to be about a $10 pitcher, and he was going for $4 a league, so he was going to be biggest bargains. Uh, and if you if you combine the fact that big bargain, innings, 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 he's an innings eater, that to me was the right strategy. You want these days high innings pitched, high innings pitched per game start. You want players on a good team, and he's on a good team, Toronto, and you want bargains. So there you go. And I know people probably lost hope when he was throwing slow in spring training in April, but actually that reminded me of Zach Greinke, and I held all my Chris Bassett shares, and it paid out. Which hitter has been your biggest disappointment across your teams? Uh, I'll go with uh, both Josh Bell and Jake McCarthy. I mean, Josh Bell, I kept waiting for him to turn it around, and I don't know, I guess in the back of my mind and in our minds, we said that, oh, he's got that... 2019 ceiling where he hit 37 homers and batted 277. But, you know, he probably was just a juice ball product, and that was just a fluke. Um, keep keep hoping, but uh, just didn't work out. Uh, Jake McCarthy, 
I think projections just just flat got him wrong. Uh, there was way too much credit given to the prior year, both in his power and average. He really has zero power, uh, and his average is just uh, mediocre. Um, and the playing time assumption, I think, on projections were really wrong. And I, I guess I got duped, and I got a bunch of shares with him. And even worse, he was sent to the minors, and then you have to make decisions in some leagues where you don't, uh, you know, I mean, you can't put him on the IL. He's in the minors. So I had to cut him in a bunch of leagues where I had problems. And, uh, you know, I even lost him. So I, pay, I paid a big investment. <laughs> I lost him. Didn't really give me what I wanted. He has bounced back with the stolen bases, but just just a disaster. So Jake, Jake McCarthy and Josh Bell for me. How are you responding to Josh Bell being traded to the Marlins? I mean, if I have him uh, in deep leagues, I'm I'm continuing to play him. There's really not much you're going to do if you're in a deep league. You really have to play him. If you're in a shallow league, um, I mean, what are you going to do? It's it's uh, it, you you probably have already dropped him or cut him. In I've cut him in my 12 team leagues already, 10 team leagues for sure. Um, I wouldn't go out and get him just because he's on the Marlins. It's a terrible ballpark as it is. Maybe a slightly better lineup, maybe, uh, but. The ballpark, the ballpark factor is probably the overriding thing, and uh, I'm just not interested in Josh Bell. Uh, if I wasn't interested before, I'm not interested now. The one thing that uh, I thought when I saw the trade is that he ended up hitting fourth in the lineup, which is a lineup a roster slot improvement. Is there any balancing out where you look at, okay, he's in a worse park, but he's in a better position in the lineup to drive in runs and score runs? Yeah, of course. There's a compromise. There's always, you know, you're you're getting a better lineup slot, so you can have more RBIs and runs. Um, of course, it, if he was to gain more playing time, that would also help. And he probably is going to gain a little bit more. Uh, maybe he was platooning a drop with Josh Naylor, um, but that, that's probably minor. But yeah, you know, the ballpark is much worse in Miami. There's a balance. There's a balance. I mean, projections, rest of season projections who do take into account park factors and lineups should give you the odds. I would say he's a net negative, but it's very, very slight. It, it's pretty neutral in, in the scheme of things. And how about a pitcher who has disappointed you pretty consistently? Um, I mean, pitchers, you can always point to injured pitchers. I mean, I had a lot of shares of Max Fried, Edwin Diaz, Drew Rasmussen, Jeffrey Springs, all great picks, but just injured. Uh, but, you know, aside from injuries, I'd say Luis Severino. I guess I banked on sort of a return to a, a good level of production, if not, I mean, not elite, but at least a good level production. Uh, production. He just never got there, and he also missed playing time, so he he was a pretty much bust across the board. I was in a league where I drafted Edwin Diaz, and literally that night, the night of the draft, was when he got hurt and was out for the year. So, and I think he was a second or third round pick in that particular draft. Uh, how did you make out in the immediate aftermath of the two trade-related fab periods? Of course, we had kind of two deadlines this year with the run-up to Sunday. You had to make some moves, and there were some deals. And then Monday and Tuesday, there's a whole bunch more deals. So there was kind of two trade periods. How would you do? So I don't play in mono leagues. I think if you're in a mono league, that affects you very much because you're getting the crossover players. Um and, you know, the top players, we're talking, you know, Justin Verlander, Max Scherzer, 
change places. I mean, their value does change, but doesn't they're not available on Fab. There really wasn't that many people I saw on Fab that was really worth it. Paul DeYoung, maybe, uh, but I, I didn't have a need on my specific teams. Um, and in terms of losing playing time, I didn't really feel on my personal teams that I had anybody worth cutting. Maybe Mickey Moniak was the only one that I would say that I thought would lose playing time with the Angels acquiring some outfielders and and Crone. Um, so there you go. I'd say Andres Munoz was a guy that I held most of the, almost the whole year uh, so far. Uh, so he'll pick up some saves. So because of that, I gained on that, and I didn't need to go to the fab well to get some more saves from any of the new anointed guys. So for me personally, it, it didn't really matter that much. Uh, for some people, obviously, there's a little bit of a scramble. On Twitter, as I still like to call it, you wrote that you're contemplating the risk-reward of buying pitchers at the draft who were injured, and then you asked for comments. What did you learn from the comments? Yeah, I would say that, um, you know, being risk averse is probably best, uh, especially when the cost is meaningful. And I think that's a really good rule. The more the cost, the more risk averse you should be. And when a cost is prohibitive, you really have to take out risk completely or as much as you can. Uh, obviously, there's always injuries that can pop up, but, you know, don't take guys who are questionable or unknown. Uh, you know, if you look at all the guys this year who were at a discount in the draft because of supposed injury or we're out. We're talking Luis Severino, as we mentioned, Jacob DeGrom, Carlos Redon. I mean, do the list. Tyler Glass now, Lance McCullers, Dustin May, Chris Sale, Tristan McKenzie. Really, people didn't work out. The only one that I can think of that worked out was Clayton Kershaw did. I mean, he's just a, just a different person than everybody else. Maybe Glass now. He's come back pretty strong. But by and large, when you have a meaningful cost, it you're not even getting back your investment, right? You're not making a profit and you're certainly not doing anything. Uh, I, I tend to be risk averse and I think that really suits me. How do you intend, if at all, to do any more looking into this matter about calibrating the correct way to value these injury risk pitchers, especially pitchers coming off of fairly serious injuries in the previous season and then they come in with all these question marks over their heads? Yeah, it's a little bit difficult because, quote, injury is a gray area. I mean, was Jacob deGrom injured going into the season? Technically not, although we, we would call him injury prone. Um, it, it, it's a little bit of a gray area, so you'd have to make classification. I mean, the best way to really talk about it is, you know, any one person, you can't say, well, look at that. I worked out for Kershaw. Great. Or look at Rodon. Oh, that was a bust. Uh, you can't count on guys. The really way to do it is to study it in cohorts. And you want to build up a sample size. Look back at the last three years, four years of uh, players and categorize them best you can. And even if you can dump them all into similar price points, get the 10 to $15 players, the 15 to $22 players, and so on and so forth, uh, and see what happens to that average person. Are you profitable? Are you not profitable? And you can actually see which dollar threshold gives you some profitability for injured players and some which are just absolutely go away. So that, that's one way we can we can study it by looking at experience, but you really have to go back a couple of years because just looking at two, three pitchers is not enough. Also on Twitter, you had a question from a fan about how to compare standings gains 
he said in the original post that 10 home runs in his league could gain him three standings points. And then he asked what was most meaningful, which I didn't understand really. But in your answer, you said that it's the points to gain and the likelihood of gaining them, which I thought was absolutely correct. And then he replied with the same follow-up I would have replied with, how do you quantify the likelihood of gaining those points? Yeah, that's a great question. Uh, It's a hard one to answer, but it's actually really important. I mean, down the stretch, it's not the categories. It's it's always about the probability of winning. When when you're making a lineup decision, should I play this guy or this guy? The question really should be, well, which one gives me a higher probability to win, or uh, which is a higher probability to cash top three, or whatever uh, horizon you're you're shooting for. Um, and to convert to that really is is a challenge. I I do have an actuarial model that I put together. Um, I basically take the year to date stats by team. I take rest of season projections. I also take what I think is the variance, and I've studied what the variance is in terms of experience uh, over, you know, you take a number of fantasy leagues, mine and a bunch of others that some providers have provided me with, and you can see what what the variance is in a team's projected uh, category output to what they get week to week. I mean, you could look at this yourself. You can see that, you know, how... If, you know, how, how many uh, runs do you score on average a week and how does that vary? And you could put that variability into the model. You do it for your team. You do it for another team. If you want to be really complicated, you also add correlation between categories, right? Like batting average and runs are correlated. If you do good in one in one week, you're going to do good in the other and vice versa. Um, and you simulate what some, I don't know, 5,000 times of what could possibly happen in the coming uh, rest of season. And then you can analyze results and get a probability distribution. So that's, I mean, it's very actuarial. That's what I do uh, when I'm really looking at a league that I, I need to make focus and make great decisions. And, and it could be trade decisions, waiver wire decisions, lineup decisions. Uh, for most people, though, uh, it's hard to do that. Um, you really need to eyeball it. You really need to take a look and see, you know, Look at the categories. How far are you behind? How many times do you go above average or above what your projected are? How many times does your opponent do that? And you can gauge what it takes to need and some rough probability in your head per category. And you do that for each category, and that gives you a rough probability. So e- easier said than done, or uh, it's actually not that easy to say and not that easy to do. Uh, maybe one day I'll release my model to the public, or even better yet, maybe I'll sell it to one of those stat providers, and you know you can click on here's your probabilities for coming back. And even if you don't want to, I think there's some value in modeling the rest of your season, even just as long as you have all the t- the other teams and all their players listed, you can project each of the players and then sum the totals and try to figure out what what's coming the rest of the way. But you mentioned that there's the question of variability in the outcomes. Are the categories more or less equally variable, or are some more variable than others? Um, They are more variable than others categories. Uh, A lot of it has to do with sample size. You know, stolen bases are pretty fickle. Uh, Even batting average could be. Um, the, uh, the run scored maybe is a little bit easier to calculate because, uh, you know, better lineups and better teams do it. It's a sort of a team effort. Uh, pitching wins are very, very variable. Um, saves are variable. Strikeouts are probably the least variable of anything, uh, because pitcher strikeout rates are pretty much, um, converged pretty close. 
Uh, but yeah, it's it's uh, it's going to be a different variability per category. And you know, the, I mentioned correlation. There's different correlation levels between the categories, right? Stolen bases are really not cal cal calibrated to home runs all that much. Um, and stolen bases are not cal uh, calibrated to pitching wins, you know, so on and so forth. I had a thought about the rest of season projections when I was doing this. And then when I was listening to you on your Beat the Shift podcast, on the one hand, if you do a projection now, you have more year-to-date data that you can use to set the baselines for the stats, which should enhance the accuracy of the projections. But on the other hand, you have fewer games left to play, which should mean greater variance in the results and therefore reduce projection accuracy. How do these two factors interact, Ariel, do you think? And what is the net result for the projections accuracy for rest of season? All right, so your, your question basically is saying that, well, you should be more accurate because you've got more info on the current season, but of course there's fewer games, so there's going to be more variance. I think the way to, to parse that out is there's two factors. One is called parameter risk and one is called process risk. In process risk, that's really just the variability that you would get by the fact that there is a, a finite number of games. If you have only 10 games to go versus 162 games to go, what a player's true talent is less likely to come up exactly in the small sample size, it's it's more likely to come up in the longer sample size. So you're going to get more variability for that. And by the way, that's not really diversifiable, right? You can't do anything about that. It's it's You have 10 games, you're just going to get that variance. Nobody is that uber consistent, right? Um, and in terms of being more accurate, the parameter risk as the season goes on diminishes because you've got better data. The current year's data is much better than any other year, right? I mean, if you were doing a historical analysis, maybe you would weight it one and a half to two times more. Every, meaning every game that played this, this season is worth double, let's say, last season in terms of the overall effect on true talent. So the parameter risk goes down. Altogether, um, process risk really is greater. Um, so you will still get that variability. The variability will increase because process risk is bigger than parameter risk. But there's nothing you can do about it, right? It, it is what it is. Pro rest of season projections should be more accurate on a 162-game basis the later you go in a season. So when we're talking about uh, advising people on how to approach these category considerations when you're trying to plan the rest of your season and figure out how you're going to reach your aspirations, whether they are to win or just to gain points, which are the categories do you think are best to focus on because they're the most stable or the most predictable? I mean, uh, it, it really depends where you are down the stretch if you're in the middle of the season, right? If, if your categories are close in homers versus stolen bases, it really matters for that. Um, strikeouts stabilize pretty quick. Anything with a large number, you know, RBIs is going to be a larger number than homers. That's going to stabilize more quickly. Right? It, it's more the sample size than anything else. Um, batting average is more variable than, than the run scored. Uh, wins, I, I, same things that I mentioned before. Wins are going to be very fickle. It, it, you know, you, you're going to make your best decision, whatever it is, right? It doesn't really matter. If you're in a vacuum still, you're going to make your best decision, period. It doesn't really matter about the variability, but it's always your specific situation. Uh, you got to look to see what is most impactful to your score in each roto category. And I think, again, it's super important, I believe, that you can't do that with the 
with the standings as they sit today. You do have to make some attempt to project them out to the end of the season because how teams amass the, the stats they have today will have changed. They've lost players to injuries, they've traded for players, they've acquired players through fab and so forth. So their roster today is not the same. In fact, in some instances, it's vastly different from what they started with. And so you need to take what they've got today and add what they're likely to get tomorrow to come up with some kind of final estimate of where everybody's going to end up. And then I think if you do that, and then you look at the categories and you realize, hey, I'm in the middle of a home run bunch where I could gain five points if I got five extra home runs. Now you know that you have at least a rational reason to go and pursue home runs in the trade market or in the fab market or wherever they're available. And if you're struggling in stolen bases and you're not going to be able to get, or if you're so far ahead of the pack that it doesn't matter, then you can you can start trading away or dropping your stolen bases in the pursuit of those home runs. And I was talking about um, projections of things years ago with Matt Beagle, who used to be the uh, American League news reporter here at Baseball HQ Radio, and he was talking about how to, how exactly to do this. And I said, "Yeah, but you know, these the projections are flawed, essentially flawed." And and he said, "Well, yeah, but they're all we've got. You have to you have to have some kind of method, and this is the method that we have." Yeah, at a very basic, you know, forget about all that variability and, and correlation that I mentioned earlier. You know, take your year, stats year to date for your league. Take a projection system, ATC rest of projection system or steamer, the bat, whatever it is, rest of season, and just add the values. You know, take take whatever the rosters are currently for your team and for the other team. It's going to be a little complicated because there's active players, there's bench players. Do your best to figure out what the active lineup is and add those projection stats and see where you're going to be on average, right? Forget about variability. Just just get the expected numbers uh, and, and, and add them. I think that's right. Uh, speaking of which, you do regularly updated rest of season projections at Fangraphs with the ATC. How often do you update those rest of season projections? So the the projections on Fangraphs are updated nightly, um, but with a caveat, you know, there's two parts to the projection. There's playing time, and then there's rates. There's skill stats. Um, so the ATC rest of projections on Fangraphs are actually labeled ATC DC. They're the uh, the depth charts, the Fangraphs depth charts, playing time and ATC rates. I I made the decision to have Fangraphs do the playing time in the middle of the season, so that you can really get the real time uh, nightly occurrence. If if a team didn't play, the projection is going to stay the same for a player, right? If a team played a game, it's going to be you know, four at bats less or whatever it is. Um, but so that gets updated uh, every night, and it's uh, Jason Martinez doing the playing time over at Fangraphs. Um, as far as the rates, that I don't update every single week. We're talking maybe every two to three weeks, very roughly, uh, throughout the year that I'm doing it. This is the first year that we're doing it on Fangraphs. Uh, so I'll probably do one more August update right before I go away on vacation and one more lab- one more update maybe shortly after Labor Day, uh, and that will take you to the rest of the season. And just so we're clear, when you talk about the rate you're talking about home runs per plate appearance, RBIs per plate appearance, those kinds of things, and then the, the, they're multiplied by the projected play, plate appearances or innings pitched? Yeah, that's right. So, um, you know, the ERA will pretty much stay the same uh, as we go throughout throughout the rest of the season, right? The uh, the batting average for player projected will be the same. You'll just see the 
the counting stats scale to whatever the playing time is remaining. When do you start thinking about your 2024 projections? Well, uh, I mean, technically I could start the day after the season uh, is, but I'll generally take off uh, a good month or two. I I typically start uh, in December, early or mid-December, and the first step is always to add the completed year into the experience study, right? You know, whatever 2023 did and shows will be added to the overall context. And then I run all my category-specific regressions to calibrate the right mix of underlying projections by each and every category. Um, And, uh, yeah, I'll have a super early cut of projections by about January 1st that I don't publish. Uh, It's mostly credible, but it's just something that I get out there. Uh, And then I'll release to the public right after Martin Luther King Jr. Day, uh, the first cut of the next coming season. We have just come through a pretty active couple of rounds of deadline trades, as I mentioned. I'm going to assume that changing teams has some effect on a player's projected stats. you got team change, park change, batting order change we talked about with Josh Bell. Which of those components has the greatest effect on projections? So I talked about this with uh, Derek Hardy a little bit. And, uh, you know, he suggested that the number one thing is if there is a big role change, if you're adding at bats, if you're subtracting at bats, that's going to be the biggest factor, you know, 20 percent more at bats. That's going to do it over whatever other factors it is. Uh, and second to that is uh, park change. Park change factor is going to be stronger than the batting order change. You know, the propensity to hit homers really doesn't matter if you're batting seventh or second. Uh, the RBIs and runs will change, but not as much to the overall value as the parks in general. Obviously, it's all case specific, but that's the general uh, goal for that. And when you talk about park effect, uh, what are the components of it, or at least the most important components of it? Um, so the park factors that uh, maybe Fangraphs use are more of an experience-based park factor where you're looking at you know three years of data of what a team does home versus road, and you compare each park to, to a neutral context. Uh, from a scientific standpoint, we're talking the dimensions of the ballpark. We're talking about the weather uh, in, in the area, altitude, things like that. Everything goes into uh, park factors, obviously. And do you do that as an individual researcher or do you rely on somebody else's calculations? I, Patrick, I only have so much time in the day. You know? I'm, not, um, I'm not saying so- it's good or bad. I'm just curious. <laughs> no, for, for, for park factors, no, I, I, I don't do any calculations in that. I'll, I'll use specific ones. Uh, I'll, I'll let the other experts uh, work on the park factors and we'll, I'll work on some of the rest. Well, Ariel, this has been very interesting so far. Uh, Let's take a break. I have to get to the news and then we'll finish our discussion in a couple of minutes. Sounds good. Ariel Cohen writes for Rotographs, hosts the Beat the Shift podcast, and produces the ATC player projection and valuation systems. He'll be back later to talk about setting lineups effectively, performing player analysis, and he'll have his boons and banes for the balance of the season. Coming up, we have our Market Watch Player News reports. That's next on Baseball HQ Radio. Right now, though, it's time in the show when I get to let you know about an item of great content that lets us say BaseballHQ.com is the best fantasy baseball website in the business. In the Facts and Flukes Performance Validation, analyst Corbin Young looks at five American leaguers, including Baltimore first baseman Ryan Mountcastle and Detroit right-handed closer Alex Lang. 
And analyst Greg Pyron looks at five National Leaguers, including Atlanta first baseman Matt Olson. What a season! And Chicago Cubs right-hander Kyle Hendricks. The Facts and Flukes performance validation columns are another great resource at BaseballHQ.com. Baseball HQ Radio. Hey, welcome back to Baseball HQ Radio. I'm Patrick Davitt. Time now for our weekly news review and update. And with Ray on holidays, I'll be taking over with the news review this week. And we'll start in Texas, where the Rangers were pretty much unscathed by injuries to position players before the All-Star break, but that has changed in a big way since. In his Playing Time Tomorrow coverage of the American League West, Jock Thompson looked at the Texas infield situation and saw some continuing opportunities, but some continuing problems. Shortstop Corey Seager hasn't missed a beat since returning from his short IL stint with a sprained thumb, but still missing from action are catcher Jonah Heim with a wrist injury, and his return date is undetermined. And now Josh Young has a broken thumb, and he's going to be out until at least mid-September. Both Heim and Young have been key components of the American League's best offense, and with the club now in a battle for Houston for the division title, they're going to be looking for some reinforcements. So there's good news on that front. Catcher D.H. Mitch Garver is on a heater since the All-Star break. 1,035 OPS through 70 plate appearances, and his career splits show he's a much better hitter when he's also catching than he is when he's D.H.ing. Still, he's rostered in barely 5% of ESPN public leagues, so check your league's waiver wire to see if Mitch Garver is available. Other than Garver, though, D.H. and third base now look pretty problematic. Ezekiel Duran is picking up playing time at both spots again, in addition to his short side left field platoon, but since the break, Duran has a 557 OPS through 88 plate appearances, and he has poor contact and power metrics to go with it. Outfield DH Robbie Grossman and utility man Josh Smith project for more playing time, but neither of them has provided much offense to date either. There's a recent call-up, Jonathan Ornelas, who projects as a glove-first infield utility type guy who's also unlikely to add much offense to the club's lineup. However, they do have some options. Sam Huff has been pretty hot at the catcher spot in DH. Five for 11 in three starts. He could see more opportunities. And Texas called up Cuban outfielder J.P. Martinez from the minors on Wednesday, and they'll activate him Friday in San Francisco. Martinez signed way back in 2018 for $2.8 million coming out of Cuba. He's now 27, but he has an 805 OPS across those five minor league seasons. This year, he's OPSing near 1,000 in AAA. The 27-year-old left-handed slugger gets his first call to the big leagues after impressing at AAA Round Rock to the tune of a 312-427-565 slash line. That's a 992 OPS in 308 plate appearances, 12 homers, 55 RBIs, 49 runs scored, and 33 stolen bases. So pay attention. This could be a good speculative grab in deep mixed and AL-only leagues if he gets the playing time, and that's still a question. Other offensive prospects who could get a look are Dustin Harris and Justin Foscue, both with big walk rates in the high minors and some defensive versatility. In Cleveland, the Guardians claimed outfielder Ramon Laureano off waivers from Oakland on Monday, placed utility man David Fry on the 10-day IL with a sore hamstring. Ryan Williams covered this story for playing time today. We're giving Laureano about half the playing time, anticipating he's going to start regularly versus left-handers and get a few starts against right-handers as well. 
The playing time losers will be Will Brennan, now likely to be relegated to only the strong side platoon role after receiving playing time against lefties since early June. Fry, who's on the IL now, has mixed in all across the diamond for Cleveland this year. His absence will have the most effect at first base, where all three of his recent starts came. With Fry sidelined, Gabriel Arias and Cole Calhoun are now the team's two options at first base, and Arias spending less time at shortstop should benefit Brian Rocchio, the recent call-up, and indirectly help Loriano and Oscar Gonzalez, since Calhoun will be spending less time DHing or in right field. In Boston, the Red Sox have activated infielder Trevor Story from the IL and DFA'd infielder Yu Chang. Chris Olson on this story for playing time today. And he says as long as Story's elbow is up to the task defensively, he should take over as Boston's everyday shortstop. Now, with Raphael Devers at third base and Luis Urias seemingly ensconced at second, current shortstop Pablo Reyes looks like he gets pushed into a reserve role. So the question is what Story will do with the bat. Our projection at Baseball HQ is that he's going to hit around 250 with a mid-750s OPS and five homers and five bags down the stretch. He has a fairly pronounced career platoon split, nearly a 1,000 OPS versus left-handers, but the high 700s versus right-handers, that's pretty much the reverse of Bobby Cassis, which suggests they might flip-flop between batting 5th and 6th depending on the opposing pitcher. Although, manager Alex Cora might also want to stick with a right-left-right-left configuration in those 3-6 through slots, which would lock Story into the 5-hole. Meanwhile, with the availability of hitters who can mash right-handers, one casualty of Story's arrival will likely be outfielder Adam Duval, who has a playable 763 OPS with a 28% strikeout rate versus right-handers for his career, but this year versus right-handers, a 643 OPS, 39% strikeouts. Let's move over to the American League pitchers. Jock Thompson's playing time tomorrow coverage of the AL West also touched on a seemingly dire situation on the Oakland pitching staff, but he kind of squinted and kind of looked and kind of saw some signs of hope ahead, and one of the reasons was 24-year-old right-hander Luis Medina. Josh says Medina is showing signs of growth. He has a 279 ERA, 129 whip over four second half games. His 25% strikeout rate, 15% swinging strike rate, and near 50% ground ball rate are all very promising, as is his 96 mile an hour average fastball velocity. Still, there are some warts. He walked five in just three innings in his last start, right after a start in Colorado where he didn't walk anybody. And his season-long numbers aren't great. 547 ERA, 153 whip, but that might make him available in your free agent pools. He might be a good, cheap stash for dynasty and keeper formats and a possible streamer for this season as the A's remaining schedule includes a series against the White Sox, another series against Detroit, and two against the Angels home and away. Outside of Medina, Jock also issued cautious recommendations for injured top prospect Mason Miller, who faces live hitters this week after four bullpen sessions, and who does plan to pitch again this season. Obviously, there's injury risk, but when he was healthy, he rang up a 3.38 ERA, a 26% strikeout rate, and high 90s velocity over his 21 innings. These are all indicators of a top-of-the-rotation arm. Watch your free agent pool for Mason Miller. And lefty rookie Ken Waldachuk's 678 ERA 552 expected has been pretty hard to stomach, but he's also displaying some second-half signs of life, including a 27% strikeout rate and a 430 expected ERA over his last 28 innings. 
And on the farm, 21-year-old Joey Estes has a 328 ERA in 104 innings at AA, 100 strikeouts, 31 walks. He was promoted recently to AAA, showing command of a broad repertoire of pitches that currently has us projecting him as a back-end starter at the major league level. Too early to recommend a stash here, but keep tabs on Joey Estes in the minors and be ready to move. Finally, among American League pitchers, in Boston we expect the Red Sox to reactivate a couple of pitchers, left-hander Chris Sale from the IL probably on Friday, and right-hander Garrett Whitlock sometime after next Wednesday when he's going to a rehab outing. Chris Olson again for playing time today. Manager Alex Corris said Chris Sale will go straight back into the rotation, while Whitlock will go into the bullpen. Through 11 starts before he went on the IL in early June with shoulder soreness, Sale was looking pretty strong. 362 expected FIP, 29% K rate, 23% K minus walk, and that would be top 10 level if Sale qualified for rate stat leaderboards. He threw 58 pitches, 38 for strikes, in his rehab outing for AAA Worcester this week. Three hits, no walks, seven strikeouts. Sale might be on a restricted pitch count in his first couple of starts back as he builds back up to a full workload, but he looks like a must-add in most formats or a must-reactivate in IL leagues. He won't be bumping anyone in particular from the Boston rotation, as the team has been using bullpen days regularly of late with varying degrees of success. The rotation squeeze will come when right-hander Tanner Houck is ready to return from the IL. He was scheduled to pitch for Worcester on Thursday, and it's expected he'll need at least one more rehab outing after that. But like Whitlock, Boston's hopes of getting Houck back into the rotation might have to be scrapped, at least for the time being, because of innings limits, in favor of some sort of bullpen, swingman, bulk innings role for both of them. There's probably no role for either of them in shallow fantasy leagues, but they could be of interest in 20-teamers or, of course, in American League only. Let's go over to the National League and start with the New York Mets infield and Brett Beatty. The Mets have optioned Brett Beatty to AAA and play Starling Marte on the IL. They called up Jonathan Arauz and Abraham Almonte. Phil Hertz covering all of this for playing time today. Beatty started the season on quite a roll, 861 OPS after his call-up in just 33 plate appearances, but with warning signs flashing all over City Field. A 60% combined ground ball and infield fly rate, a 47% hit rate, a 30% strikeout rate. Sure enough, since May 1st, Beatty has batted 202 with a 591 OPS. The Mets are calling his demotion a reset to help Beatty regain his confidence. Where have we heard that before? Fellow rookie Mark Vientos now projects to get about three-quarters of the playing time at third base, partly because, well, who else? We're projecting Vientos at 75%, though some of that is due to the lack of alternative options, so we'll be monitoring the situation and ready to cut that projection back. We discussed Marte over the weekend when he came off the IL after some migraine problems. This time he has a groin injury, and it marks his fourth trip to the IL this season. Baseball HQ has knocked his playing time projection down to 55%, but we wouldn't be surprised if he plays even less. Arouse was briefly up early this month, went one for six. Abraham Almonte, you probably know that name. He's played in the majors every season since 2013, mostly briefly and mostly as a bench supporter. There's no fantasy help really anywhere in all of this. We project Vientos in his 75% or less playing time with a 635 OPS, a couple of homers, no stolen bases. 
Different story in Chicago, where Cubs second baseman shortstop Nico Horner has been setting career highs across the board and approaching $30 in 5x5 value after an already decent $23 season last year. Greg Pyron covered Horner and four other National Leaguers in his weekly Facts and Flukes performance analysis, and he found a solid collection of skills. First, Horner has an elite 86% contact rate, which sets a pretty sturdy floor for his 272 batting average. His swinging strike rate has improved from a good 7% in 2022 to a terrific 5% this year. His lower expected batting average, line drive rate, and very non-elite batted ball metrics still suggest a batting average ceiling, but they're at least somewhat offset by 99th percentile strikeout and whiff rates. He's also retained his 90% stolen base success rate from last season, and as a result, he's been given the green light more often this year, a 26% stolen base opportunity rate, up from 17% last year. As a result, 28 stolen bases already this year against just three caught stealings and on a pace to reach close to 40 by the end of the year. He doesn't have a lot of power, but 10 to 12 home runs look within reach, and his 126 runs plus RBI is already 11 more than last year, and we have seven weeks to go in the season. By exceeding so many production numbers and skills metrics, Horner has shown that his 2022 season was not a fluke and could very well put up similar production and near $30 value in this year and in 2024. And finally, over to the National League pitchers, a couple of significant deadline trades involved bullpen arms changing teams and roles. Our Baseball HQ relief pitching analyst Doug Dennis looked at the deadline aftermath in his bullpen buyer's guide, starting with the now-settled relief situation in Arizona. The new closer, of course, will be right-hander Paul Sewald, and Doug says he will be a traditional closer for the Diamondbacks after a few months of committees and musical chairs. As the dominoes fell, right-handers Kevin Ginkle and Scott McGuff, both of whom had some turns in the ninth-inning high-leverage role, will be pushed back into earlier innings and setup roles. Right-hander Peter Strelecki came to Arizona in the Chafin trade, but doesn't figure in the saves calculus. The sneaky value in the reconfigured Arizona pen, for holds league and deeper leagues in particular, might be lefty Kyle Nelson, who has a nifty 26% strikeout minus walk this year and figures to get more holds, more vulture wins, and more vulture saves after taking over as the lefty high leverage option with left-hander Andrew Chafin traded away to Milwaukee. And the other National League bullpen with post-trade ramifications is in St. Louis, where the Cardinals sent closer Jordan Hicks to Toronto. They made that move, counting on right-hander Ryan Helsley returning to the closer role in mid-August. In the meantime, right-hander Giovanni Gallegos continues as the highest leverage reliever, with left-hander Jojo Romero filling in on a situational basis and the two of them more or less splitting the saves. So far this week, however, it has been Gallego setting up Romero. This is somewhat unexpected and certainly not what the relative skill sets recommend. It goes to show you, though, how much the Cardinals like to flex Gallegos into the highest leverage game situations. Romero's strikeout minus walk rate is terrible, whether it's his 16% year-to-date or 13% projected. He may get exposed quickly if he's in a full-time saves role facing both right-handed and left-handed hitters, as opposed to being more of a lefty specialist. As a result, Doug says we should expect Gallegos to get at least as many saves as Romero in the near term, and maybe more. Once Helsley is back, though, the saves role will be his. For Baseball HQ Radio, filling in for Ray Murphy, I'm Patrick Davitt of BaseballHQ.com.
Coming up, we have part two of our feature expert interview with Ariel Cohen. But first, let me highlight some more great resources on the Baseball HQ site right now. In this week's Playing Time Tomorrow roster forecasting, analyst Dan Marcus looks at the five teams in the National League Central, including the effects of deadline trades on St. Louis and the Cubs. And analyst Chris Olson covers the five teams in the American League East, including trouble in the Boston outfield and the emergence of an unlikely prospect in Toronto. And in this week's Speculator column, analyst Ryan Bloomfield looks at some surgers and faders over the summer, including surging pitchers like Yuri Perez, pitching faders like Mitch Keller, batting surgers like Ezekiel Tovar, and batting faders like Randy Rosarena. The Playing Time Tomorrow roster forecasting and speculator columns are two more great resources online every week at BaseballHQ.com. Baseball HQ Radio. And welcome back to Baseball HQ Radio. I'm Patrick Davitt. Time now for part two of our feature expert interview with Ariel Cohen from Rotographs, the Beat the Shift podcast, and the ATC player projection and valuation systems. Ariel, welcome back to part two. Thanks for having me again. On a recent edition of your Beat the Shift pod, uh, your partner, Ruvain Guy, and you discussed setting lineups with your guest, Clay Link of Rotowire. What prompted this idea for discussion? Well, we always start each uh, Beat the Shift podcast with uh, what we call a strategy section, and it's about the game theory, about making decisions along the way. I know a lot of podcasts talk a lot about the players and what players are hot and cold and what do we think of them, and I, I listen to those podcasts. Those are fantastic ones, but to me, the game theory aspect is just as important what to do with all this information uh, than just knowing the players. Uh, so, you know, each show is dedicated to a different kind of topic, a different thing. And uh, for with Clay Link, we had on the discussion of setting your lineups. Uh, so that, that's pretty much what prompted it. Uh, we, we'll do a, a lineup discussion maybe once or twice during the year. And, of course, setting lineups are going to be different earlier in the season versus late in the season, right? Early in the season, you're playing your best players. Um, with without regard to categories, you know, you're looking for uh, you're looking at preseason projections. It's going to be a little bit different midseason. You're going to see the context of what's happened so far. You're going to have more data in terms of what are better matchups. You're going to also have category specific things. So the strategy does change throughout the year, and it's important to highlight and to know what to do. So, what did you guys decide are the key factors in setting lineups at this time of year? bunch of them um the first thing is that weekly waiver wire pickups are really the start of the lineup process that what you're going to pick up in this in this in the fab that really plays into what you're going to play and the two are really tied together um another point is that top players above a certain line are pretty much set and forget it right if you're above you know your your, your top 10 players or whatever whatever number that you you put is it's just you're going to play them no matter what other than that Number of games in the week, health of players, right? That's important. You don't want a zero. Upcoming matchups for pitchers, maybe it's what team you're playing, righty, lefty uh, for platoon players, who, who, you know, how many pitchers they're facing for each. Um, and of course, at some point in the season, maybe August and beyond, right now, of course, it's about maximizing your category points. Above all, of course, it's always about opportunity cost. If you're sitting a player, who's going to replace them? What can you gain with one versus what can you lose with the other? That's really what you need to factor in. 
you guys talked about how to deal with players who are on hot streaks and cold streaks. And I don't believe in the predictability of streaks at all, nor our ability to know when one is starting or ending. But what was your take on the applicability of player streaks in lineup decisions? So, uh, you know, if you, if you talk to uh, Derek Hardy, he'll tell you there's no such thing. Projections are projections. Stats are king. Ignore what the heck anything happened. Um, I mean, I think I think it depends. Cold streaks can be a sign of injury. Um, you really need to figure out the story there. Um, you know, cold streaks could could be bad play. It, it could very, very well be the injury. That's something that you really got to discern. I mean, Anthony Rizzo was just super cold. And, you know, if you caught on right away that it was injured and you stopped playing him, that was great. I caught on at some point, right? took me a little bit longer, but that's really something if you can catch on is great. Um, hot streaks, well, you got to determine whether is that a sign of more skill. So look at the components. Um, I think that hot streaks could identify some some improved skills. Uh, I, I use maybe hot streaks maybe more for the waiver wire, right? Who is a pickup? You know, he may not work out, but get him on the roster. See if he continues. See if he if skills. You know, do now. Think later. Don't think now because you got to get the guy now. If you act too slow, you won't get him. I think for pitching, streakiness is important. If you have three good starts in a row, there's actually a more likely chance he'll follow it up with a good start, and vice versa. If you've got three or four bad starts in a row, odds are that the next start's going to be lousy. So I think streakiness does play a little bit of a role. Uh, projections are, to me, still the above above overall driver. But, of course, projections have blind spots and changing scenarios or a thing, injuries or something wrong, a new pitch or whatever it is. But looking at the components over the streakiness is something that you should do and factor it in. I think that's an interesting distinction to make. The other advantage of looking at players who are on hot streaks is they tend to get a little more playing time. The manager sees the guy is on a roll. He's going to get uh, more opportunities, I think, over the short run anyway. The danger, of course, is you spend a big wad of fab on a guy who's just, you know, sporting a 520 BABIP. And, you know, sooner or later that chicken comes home to roost and all of a sudden he's back to his regular 290 BABIP and everything collapses from there. So you really do have to be careful about that. But I think you're exactly right about cold streaks. There are sometimes real causes for them, especially when good players go on extended cold streaks. And the example that I was going to use was Anthony Rizzo. And this was particularly pernicious, Ariel, because this was not the kind of injury that showed up easily. It wasn't like he had a broken finger or it wasn't like he was, you know, rocking a sore knee. This was a concussion and it was hidden. And for that reason, the determination of the injury was actually in the, in the playing performance. Yeah, it's hard. I mean, uh, how many of us have had Adam Dunn in the past where he stunk for three weeks in a row and then you say, well, maybe he's injured or maybe he's cold. Let's hit him. And then all of a sudden he hits four home runs in one week, right? I mean, you got to know who your player is. Uh, and it's not easy to tell. I mean, the Yankees had given us no indication that something was wrong with him. Obviously, we find out now that he's had this concussion for the longest time. Uh, it's not easy, all right? But it is something. The cold streak could mean something. Not always, but it could. So, uh, you know, whether we can do it or not, something else, but it's, it's just important to know. You said on your pod that the process starts for you by looking at that week's projected stats. And you mentioned the Rasball weekly stats, uh, Derek Cardi's bat system has 
weekly projections, but there's obviously, as we discussed earlier, enormous variability in a projection for a hitter who's going to get 25 or 30 plate appearances. And there's going to be variability in one-week stats for pitchers as well. So what is the benefit to you of looking at one-week projections? I mean, we talked about it before with parameter risk and process risk. Like, it's a short sample size, the fact that it's one week. But if you make the same, the right decision, you know, for all 26 weeks of the fantasy, obviously you're going to get some decisions wrong. But if on average, if you're making the right decision more, then you're going you're gonna to be successful. And projections generally are one of our best guides. So, sure, it could be wrong, but we know it's going to be wrong. Uh, the idea is to do that. I mean, I always point to that World Series game where Tampa Bay took out Blake Snell after he two times through the lineup. And he said, wait, he's only pitched five innings. Come on, it's the World Series. But, you know, that was the game plan every single time before. And the Rays had had great success all season. It's the right decision in the aggregate. It's the right decision on the whole, on average. Obviously, it didn't work out that one time in the end in a very important scenario. But, you know, if you start not trusting the, the system, then you're going to do bad elsewhere, right? You got to stick with the system. If you can determine that, oh, this is a different case, that the system is different in this scenario, of course, that's something else. But in general, if you have the same process repeating, making the right decision every week will turn in more successes than duds. Don't be afraid of the variance week to week. You just go with the right decision. It's about the process, not the outcomes. Uh, you made an interesting point on the pod about the number of games for a hitter in a week. You get seven games from player A. It might not always be better than five games from another player. How does that work? How do you calculate it? And how do you make that decision? Well, first of all, it's always opportunity cost, as we mentioned. You know, if you're taking out Freddie Freeman, who has five games in your lineup, who are you putting in for that has seven games in your lineup? That's going to do better than Freddie Freeman, right? Is it, who on the waiver wire is is Freddie Freeman minus twenty five percent? There's nobody, right? Uh, but when you're getting to the middle of the pack, if you have a fourth outfielder that has five that has five games, I mean, imagine. If you take out 29%, right, 29% is is uh, two-sevenths of his stats and, and pretend he was injured, oh, he's going to be out until until June, all right? Would, would you take that guy or would you lower him in the pre-draft scenario? You certainly would lower him because that's much fewer at-bats. So if you think about it, a fringe waiver guy is going to actually have more expected stats for the week in seven games than, than the five for a, a middling guy, for a guy who's a fourth outfielder, a middle infielder. Now, obviously, the big caveat is that's assuming everybody plays every game, right? If the guy who's playing seven games is not playing every game, if he's only going to play five out of seven games, well, then you didn't do anything. Uh, so you have to figure out what the possibility is for him to start. And in that kind of scenario, you can do that, right? You can just take down the at-bats, the, the, the total projected at-bats for a season by X percent based on the number of games he's going to play that week and measure it for one against the other guy, and that gives you that gives you the answer. I mean, there's a scenario in NFBC where we have twice-a-week lineups in the first half of the week, Monday through Thursday. You might have a guy like, like uh, well, Freddie Freeman's too high, but Cedric Mullins, let's say, a little bit lower, playing two games, and somebody much, much, much lower playing four games. Well, you might want that guy who's lower playing twice as much as Cedric Mullins it's Cedric Mullins at 300 at bats versus a scrub player at 600 at bats. 
actually the 600 is going to give you a lot more stats if you think about it. So do do think about the the pure quantity of of games that you're getting for each player, and it's heightened in the half week scenario. And as you said earlier, because you're able to use the stats that have already been amassed this year, they're they're very fresh and they're a little more applicable to the rate that you're going to set on a per game basis. Then you multiply it out by how many games each player might start. But you do have to be careful, especially with pl- platoon situations. There's a lot of these marginal players who don't play against same side pitching. Yeah, of course. It, it's you got to project the lineup. We don't know what a certain team is going to do three days from now. You can guess lefty righty. You can make your best guess. Uh, obviously, if you're in a scenario seven games versus six games, with with the variability of how the lineup works, especially the platoon, I'm probably not going to make an adjustment. But seven versus five, I might. Four versus three, four versus two, I might. Right, uh, and it depends how disparate the players are. The higher the player up the less likely I'm going to pull them. If you're somewhere in the middle, it's this guy or that guy, well, then you can make that decision. And the number of games should be actually a major factor in your decision. Yeah, I was going to suggest one of the big factors is what's the gap in actual talent between player A and player B. And oftentimes you just have to figure it out and just say, I'm going to start Mookie Betts and not Matt Duffy. You know, I don't care how many games they're each playing. It doesn't make any sense. You said that how we approach two-star pitchers has changed over the last few years. Used to be two-star was an automatic start. What about now? I used to go at the end of the season and used to say, all right, we're in late August, early September. Let's see what two-star pitchers are available and grab them. And it really didn't matter much because they would generally go at least six innings. So they give you, you know, at least seven, eight strikeouts a week, which better than one guy, you know, pitching, even if he's good. And you've got two chances for a win, and that would stick in your mind. Wow, I got two chances to win a game? That's fantastic. Problem is, nowadays in baseball, the fringe pitchers, they don't go the five innings required. They barely go four innings sometimes. So, in fact, you're not getting two chances for a win. The You're actually getting zero chances for a win. There's no point in putting a two-star pitcher in in terms of getting wins. Like, it, 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 you, you don't even consider it. Right? You're not getting that opportunity. And strikeouts, well, if you're only pitching eight innings a week, these are fringe pitchers. These strikeout guys are pedestrian. So what are you gaining over, over uh, a, you know, a more middle-of-the-road starter? Not much. And your ratios are getting killed for two games. So... It really is not a thing to pick up two-star pitchers. Now, sure, if I see a two-star matchup versus a really, really crappy team, you know, I'd consider it more versus, you know, some fringe starter on my squad. Sure, I'm not out of the business of looking at players on the waiver wire, but just the mere fact that he has two starts is not good enough for me anymore. There's got to be a good start somewhere in it worth it. And you want to take into account the quality of the opposition in the two starts because that's going to make a difference as well in a lot of different ways. Ruvain Guy, your co-host and partner, said it might even be better to look at a relief pitcher in that spot instead of a marginal two-start starting pitcher. What was his thinking? Yeah, so his thinking is that not only do do you not start these lousy pitchers, but you know these days the vulture wins play in. I mean, there are relief pitchers who have eight, nine wins regularly on the season and it's vulture wins. So don't say, well, if I throw in the middle reliever, I'm not going to get a win. You actually might, or you can get 
uh, if you throw in a uh, setup guy, you can actually back into a save or two as well, right? There's more value than you think from the middle relievers, and plus they're pretty good and they're cheap, right? There's great middle relievers available on the waiver wire each week, uh, and, and so on and so forth. Uh, to me, I, I, I also say that at the beginning of the season, when you don't really know who the fringe pitchers are, why put a seventh starter in your lineup to kill your ratios? Get a good middle reliever. Just get some ratios down. The ratios are hard to fix. Now, lately, I'd say that strikeouts are getting a little bit tougher, um, tougher to 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 really manage. But I don't want to have my ratios killed, and that's why I try. I'm not saying that I I try to have fewer innings. You don't want that, but I try to limit the the pitchers I don't know about, or I don't think that they're going to come up with a good outcome. Um, and that's really why I think middle relievers are are a very good play to throw somebody in each week. I mean, in, in the NFBC auction, I'm like second or third league in strikeouts, and I have at least four, three or four relievers, you know, one or two middle relievers every single week. Guys like Yanier Cano, um, the guy on uh, uh, Milwaukee, escapes my name, Joe Payampas. Those guys, I have at least one of those each week. They just really fortify the ratios. And by the way, they strike out like, four or five guys a week anyways, they, they keep you up somewhat. I was going to say some of those middle relievers will amass more strikeouts in a week or in a season than a lot of your fifth and sixth starters will just because they, we think, oh, he's a relief pitcher. He only throws one inning. Yeah, but if he does it four times a week, now all of a sudden he's getting pretty close to the six innings you're going to get from the, from the bad starter anyway. Your ratios are more protected and given the disparity between a good reliever's strikeout rate per inning versus a six starters strikeout rate per inning, you might end up with more strikeouts kind of as a bonus, just basically for free. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, guys, guys like, uh, Yanier Cano, uh, is, is worth it. Now, if you look at his roto value, it's probably about two, $3, but they're worth it so that you avoid the negative $7 guys, right? <laughs> Why have a why have your seventh spot throw a negative seven when you can get a two three dollar guy? It's a difference of uh, could be almost ten dollars worth. In a discussion about when to include category status in weekly lineup decisions, you said you start doing so right after the All Star break. Uh, Ruvain and Clay Link both differed. Uh, why do you do it right after the All Star break, and what was their different approach? I'm not sure that they really differed. Um, you know, they're obviously saying that you look at categories there. I, I just made the point that, uh, you know, I, I'll take a good look at my categories right after the All-Star break and and see. I don't want to wait till the last minute to really attack things. I want to get the, the plan in process. And, you know, you got to make trades also in your league before the trade deadline. You know, you want to you want to see what you can shore up in your category. So uh, there's I mean, there's no reason why you can't look at look at categories from day one, right? You can, uh, but I think that the folk, a lot of things you can do, but the focus on the categories to me should begin with a nice review of your team right after the all-star break. And you can see, okay, I got to make a play in this category. All right, this is close. Let's just keep it up, right? You can make some decisions right away and there's no time to do it uh, rather than the present. You're listening to Baseball HQ Radio, Patrick Davitt with Ariel Cohen from Fangraphs and the Beat the Shift podcast. And Ariel, in another edition of Beat the Shift, you discussed player analysis with Andrea Arcadapani of the Scout Girl, I hope I said that last name correctly, who also worked in talent evaluation and scouting for the Yankees. Pretty good credentials. Uh, what were the keys to player evaluation in your guys' discussion? 
Yeah, so for her, and remember, she used to work for the Yankees, and this is a baseball job, not a fantasy baseball job, right? So it's a little bit different focus for her. Uh, but what she said was, you know, you first look at strengths and weaknesses of the of the players. You look at the ways that they contribute. Are they the power player, the speed player for the pitcher? Are they the ground ball? Are they getting guys by ground ball? Are they getting strikeouts? And are they executing their plan? You look at their plan of attack. Uh, and you're seeing what is going right and what is going wrong. Um, always start with the surface numbers and see how that's going and then check the underlying components. Um, I also check the luck metrics. So, you know, you're checking the strikeout rate and walk rate for, for validity of pitchers, but you're also checking the BABIP and the strand rate and uh, whether the homer to fly ball rate looks real wonky. Are you looking for aberrations in the statistics, in the statistics based on some of the luck metrics? Um, for me, I'm always looking at projections as the base. And if there's a difference in the, what the player is doing versus projections, then I'm looking into why that's true and figuring out why, whether it's true or false. A lot of things to do in, in player evaluation and depends what purpose, but uh, those are some of the key notes. When you talked about stolen bases, what were the ways that we can identify new or improving stolen base sources? Well, there's two ways. One that Andrea given, you really check out her work. Um, she's talking not just about sprint speed, but at recognition, batter recognition at reading the pitchers. Like Freddie Freeman is identifying when to run a lot better than he used to, a lot better than others. I'm not really sure what stat that is. Check out her article on that. But it's the recognition that's important for finding some new players. Uh, and uh, to me, I think it's also the organizational philosophy. I mean, I talked in the show about the fact that John Birdie is not running. And John Birdie is hitting like 285 this year. You know, he's getting on base. It's not like, well, Birdie's running less. So, yes, he's having a bad year. He's getting on base. And he's playing almost every day. Uh, but the manager is giving less green light. So it's really about the organizational context. If you want to look for some players that are running, look at teams that are running. Oakland, Cincinnati, Arizona, and actually Tampa Bay is running. I, I found that weird for an analytics team, but I guess they're saying that the analytics is worth running this year. So, you know, those couple of organizations, that might be a source of uh, profit for you from stolen bases. I think the Freddie Freeman example that you guys use is really good because he's not a top rated sprint speed guy. What he is, is really smart about baseball. He knows what to do and when to do it. And it reminds me of a interview I heard years ago on the Sirius XM channel, Theo Epstein, when he was still with Boston, was asked about J.D. Drew. And he said, you know, why do you guys keep playing J.D. Drew? J.D. Drew's not that great of a player. And Epstein said, he's a fantastic player because he never makes a mistake out there. Everything you're supposed to do as a baseball player, he does it, and he does it correctly. Watch a guy go first to third. Watch a guy go second to home, you know, while he's running the bases. These are not just speed skills. These are baseball skills. And when you have a, a good player, you can get a lot of surprising stolen base performance out of them, as you do with Freddie Freeman and a few other guys. I think that's something really interesting that we need to keep in mind especially in the new stolen base era where all of a sudden it looks a lot more likely that if you take off from first, you're that much more likely to, to finish at second with a stolen base. You mentioned the importance of opposing pitchers and catchers since some are obviously better than others at preventing stolen bases. How can we apply that to our preseason assessments of likely base stealers? So I think on, on a full season basis, it, it's really hard to do that. 
um, because you're going to get the you know the same assortment or similar assortment of pitchers and catchers against you the whole season. And uh, you know to look at it, it, it to me that's more of a week to week thing. If you're you know coming up and you're deciding who to play, well. Look at the catchers and pitchers who are more successful and don't play them and vice versa. Play guys against Noah Syndergaard, right? I mean, <laughs> that is the example that always comes up. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Thor just can't hold runners. I mean, it's, 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 an, it's, uh, that's one of his traits as a pitcher doesn't hold runners. It's, it's obviously a skill, a negative skill for him. Uh, so to me, it's a week to week thing looking at matchups as opposed to a, a season long. I, now, personally, I'll tell you though, this year, I have not really looked at catchers and pitchers and uh, when constructing my lineups. Um, I think it's more on the daily basis. If you're if you're having a daily league, then that's something I would look at daily pickups or daily plays or DFS for sure. Um, I I don't do daily anymore, um, and I haven't really found it meaningful use of my time to look at that. So it's a factor for me, but it's it's down. You know, you're listening to Baseball HQ Radio. Patrick Davitt with Ariel Cohen from Fangraphs and the Beat the Shift podcast. And Ariel, as you know, I always like to wrap up these discussions by looking at some boons and banes for the rest of the season. Let's start with your boons. These are players you think look like good value down the stretch. Who's a batter who could be a rest-of-season boon? So let's go with uh, Nico Horner, um, especially in rotisserie. He's he's good. He, he's batting 274 in the year. And even high, even recently, it's it's been higher. He's almost 300 over the last month and a half. He has eight homers and 27 stolen bases. So we're talking about a a 10.35 guy uh, projected. That's pretty good. And looking at his components, he's got an 87% contact rate. So he's striking out only 30, 13% of the time. That means he's going to have a high floor production. You're going to get less variability and more assurance that he's going to get on than anybody else. Um, and he's got that that stolen bases, which is super valuable. Um, I, I think he's been an undervalued player all every single year so far. I've always bought him and have always been successful here. Uh, so Nico Horner. And uh, let's just throw out Joey Votto. I think this guy is going to go out with a bang. He just he just looks like he's doing the Pujols, Buster Posey last year. Go for it. He's excited. He's posting videos which by the way his videos are hilarious uh check them out and i'm not a tiktok guy but you got to check out joey Votto. he's great who's a pitcher who could be a boon for the rest of the season so from guys who are already on teams i'd say justin verlander i think that the trade definitely gave him a much better situation you know he was likely hurt all year so whatever numbers season complete is to date it's probably somewhat bogus he was Probably he came back at the minimum uh, just just to get on the field if the Mets needed it, but you know he was hurt all year. He's pitching really great in the last month. I mean, he looks like himself. Remember, last year he was a Saw Young Award winner. He's only a half season removed from that. Uh, so Justin Verlander is going to be good rest of the season in a better situation now, better team, uh, going to get a lot of strikeouts in that ballpark. Uh, but um, uh, for to give you a lower guy down, how about Brady Singer? Brady Singer is now giving you length. He's giving you a lot of innings. He's getting strikeouts. He's really limiting walks in the last month and a half. He's not a top pitcher, but he's a pitcher that I think is going to be better than his expectations down the stretch. Pretty limited expectations at that. Let's go to your Baines, uh, players who will likely be disappointments down the stretch. 
Who's a batter who could be a bane for the rest of the season? Um, let, Let's go with Kike Hernandez. Um, He's had a nice two weeks just now, so maybe people are gung-ho on, oh, he just got traded back to the Dodgers. There we go. Uh, but I think he's a little bit lucky in the last two weeks. And if you look at the way that their team is constructed, they're constructed to be platoons, and he's going to be the righty batter, so he's going to get the short side of a platoon. He's not barreling the ball. He's not walking as much as usual. Uh, so you're going to see him lose playing time down the stretch for a bunch of those reasons. You know, they also have Ahmed Rosario. They've got a, ca a cast of guys. I, I think you're going to see him lose playing time. So Kike Hernandez, a bit of a bane. And how about a pitcher who could be a bane for the rest of the year? Let's go with the slew of NL Central new, newly appointed or what we think are newly appointed closers. I'm talking about Gregory Santos and Carlos Hernandez on the White Sox and Royals, respectively. Maybe they're the closers, but they're really not good. The team is bad. You're getting not much help there. So don't go overboard if you're trying to pick up these two guys. Like There might be some better middle relievers that are more worth it than picking up these fringe closers. I mean, obviously, you're desperate in a deep league. I'm not going to tell you no, but for most of us here, it's pretty much just ignore. I did a study years ago and found out that if you want to figure out how many saves there are going to be, just take the number of wins a team's going to get and cut it in half because basically about half of wins get saves. And uh, in the case of the White Sox and the Royals, that number of wins is probably going to be fairly paltry down the stretch because they, if anything, got even worse, especially in Chicago with the trades that they made. Ariel Cohen's Boons, uh, Nico Horner of the Cubs, Joey Votto of Cincinnati, good Canadian kid, uh, Justin Verlander of Houston, Brady Singer of Kansas City, his Baines, Kike Hernandez of the Dodgers, Gregory Santos of the White Sox, Carlos Hernandez of the Royals. Gosh, Ariel, it's always fun to talk with you. Remind our listeners where they can keep up with your work. Oh, absolutely. Always a pleasure. And thank you so much for having me, Patrick. Uh, you can look at my stuff over at Fangraphs in the Rotograph section. Uh, I'm on Rotoballer. I do the Beat the Shift podcast each and every week. And uh, I'm on Twitter or X.com, whatever the heck you want to call it, at, at ATCNY. Thanks so much, Patrick. And I should give myself a plug. I'm going to be appearing in sometime in the near future on the Beat the Shift podcast. We're just trying to work out the the date, and uh, certainly mention that here on Baseball HQ Radio when we lock down a date. Ariel, thanks very much. Are you going to First Pitch Arizona? I do plan to be there. Very excited and looking forward to seeing you and everyone else who comes. Uh, definitely come to that event. It's It's a wonderful time. All right, Ariel, thanks very much again. Look forward to seeing you in Arizona, and take care. All right, Patrick. See you soon. Ariel Cohen writes for Rotographs, hosts the Beat the Shift podcast, and manages the ATC player projection and valuation systems. Coming up, we have our Baseball HQ commentaries. The Minor League Minute and Frequent Flyer are on the way, but first, one last reminder of the resources available to you when you subscribe to BaseballHQ.com, the best fantasy website in the business. The Baseball HQ scouting team has comprehensive coverage of prospects who can make or break a fantasy season. This week, our daily call-ups report continues to cover all the newly arriving prospects, including Cincinnati right-hander Lion Richardson, Tampa second baseman Curtis Mead off to a cold start, Toronto utility man Davis Schneider off to a roaring start, and Angels center fielder Jordan Adams. 
In Chris Blessing's column, The Eyes Have It, he covers three prospects, including Baltimore catcher Samuel Basallo, who will be coming up in a minute, Cubs shortstop Jefferson Rojas, and Mets cornerman Yohairo Cuevas. Plus, The Eyes Have It podcast this week is titled The Chris Show, which I can only assume means quite a bit of Chris Blessing and his takes on prospects high and low. Comprehensive prospect coverage is another great resource at BaseballHQ.com. I've mentioned a few of the resources on the site now at BaseballHQ.com, and they're just the tip of the iceberg of all the great content and tools you'll find at BaseballHQ.com all the time. Player performance validation in facts and flukes, news updates in playing time today and roster forecasting in playing time tomorrow, We have buyer's guides for hitters, starters, and relievers, fantasy market analysis in the market pulse, long shot suggestions in the speculator column, player injury analysis, the big hurt column, and team injury reports, gaming strategy analysis for Roto, points leagues, NFBC, and alternative formats, and groundbreaking fantasy baseball research. As well, there are tools like the player projections updated every day, updated depth charts, daily dashboards, pitcher matchups planners, bullpen indicators, batter consistency reports, complete pitcher PQS logs, potential surgers and faders, and other leading indicators for hitters and pitchers. Add it all up, you get expert content plus tools you can use to improve your teams and win your leagues. And they're why we call our site the best fantasy baseball website in the business. Baseball HQ Radio. Ed, welcome back to Baseball HQ Radio. PD here. Time now for our Baseball HQ commentaries. Coming up, we have the frequent flyer. And leading off, it's the Minor League Minute. And with Baseball HQ scouting team member Rob Gordon away from the mic this week, I'm pinch hitting with a look at Baltimore catching prospect Samuel Basallo. In a recent edition of The Eyes Have It, that's Chris Blessing's column, not Chris Blessing's podcast, he had a rave review of a young Baltimore catching prospect named Samuel Basallo. Of course, your first reaction like mine was probably, does Baltimore really need another catching prospect? But hear me out. Basallo is not the kind of prospect that Rob Gordon usually covers, within reach of the majors and poised to contribute sooner rather than later. Basallo is a prospect poised to contribute later rather than sooner. He just got promoted from the single-A Carolina League to the high-A South Atlantic League, and he's only 18 years old. But Chris Blessing called Basallo probably the juiciest breakout prospect in the Carolina League this year. He's slashing 285, 373, 476, with 12 homers, 19 doubles, and 4 stolen bases between low-A and high-A, although he's off to a slow start in Aberdeen in the high-A league. He's built like another former Baltimore catching prospect, tall and lean, and maturing with room to add a lot of strength. He has raw plus power. His left-handed bat plays to all fields, though his natural swing currently goes right center field. He will take pitches to the opposite field with power or up the middle later in the count, and his quick hands let him pull pitches, even if he's late to make contact in front of the plate. Like many young players, his approach is aggressive and maybe a little too aggressive. His swing rate north of 50%, although he has solid in-zone contact rates, he chases way too many pitches out of the zone, especially fastballs up and breaking stuff down and away. Like every 18-year-old prospect who ever was, probably. He's a good athlete for his size and position, and he does have a strong arm, 
but his receiving skills are below average, even for high A, although automated strike zones could reduce the importance of framing and receiving and let him stay behind the plate, where his strong throwing arm plays well and his fantasy value increases. Scouts are mixed on whether Basalo will stay behind the plate or move to first base, and he's a pretty good athlete with average speed. He could even end up in the corner outfield. Overall, Chris says Basalo has the potential of being a big bopper. Oh, baby, that's a one I like. Well, Chris didn't mean that big bopper, but it is a profile we should like. A 30-homer bat with a 9D rating. That's all-star potential with a 30% chance of achieving it. If you play in a dynasty with deep farm rosters, check out Samuel Basalo. Sitting in for Baseball HQ scouting team member Rob Gordon, I'm Patrick Davitt of BaseballHQ.com. Rob will be back next week with another edition of the Minor League Minute, which appears regularly here at Baseball HQ Radio. Now it's time for the Frequent Flyer, where we look at a player who might be available on your league's free agent list and who has the skills to contribute to the success of your teams. Here with a look at Milwaukee right-hander Abner Uribe is Baseball HQ analyst Alex Becky. He has the best fastball in the Milwaukee Brewers organization, according to Baseball HQ's 2023 Minor League Baseball Analyst with big-time heat and rising action. High praise indeed. In fact, few pitchers of baseball can match the pure power and electricity emanating from their pitching arm than this 23-year-old Milwaukee Brewers right-handed reliever, Abner Uribe, according to Baseball HQ's Jeremy Deloney in the July 9th edition of Call-Ups on BaseballHQ.com. Armed with a 103-mile-per-hour fastball, he's bringing big-time heat, according to Baseball HQ's 2023 Minor League Baseball Analyst that sits at 97 to 101 miles per hour with rising action. Indeed, very few Major League pitchers can currently, no pun intended, match Uribe's electricity. More specifically, according to MLB's Baseball Savant through August 8th, only Minnesota's Joan Duran and recently traded Jordan Hicks have higher average velocities on their four-seam fastballs than Uribe. Even so, despite his exceptional dominance rate of 16 strikeouts per nine through two levels of the minors in 2023, Uribe's subpar control rate of 6.26 walks per nine, where research at BaseballHQ.com recommends finding pitchers with control rates of 2.5 five walks per nine or less is, well, shocking to say the least. That's why 23-year-old Milwaukee Brewers high-voltage reliever Abner Uribe, like all of our frequent flyers, should be considered to be a long shot, who may be worth a flyer if he is still available in your league. He is electric, though. Once again, Uribe is only one of three major league pitchers currently exceeding an average velocity of 100 miles per hour or higher, approaching 101 miles per hour on average, on four-seam fastballs. Whoa! And the best part? Uribe's 103-mile-per-hour four-seam fastball with top three 99th percentile major league velocity might not even be his best pitch. Wow, let that sink in for a moment. Indeed, pitching ninjas Rob Friedman called Uribe's 99-mile-per-hour sinker demonic on X, formerly Twitter, on August 6th, adding that ball is possessed, referring to its movement on a wicked sinker thrown to Pittsburgh's Jack Sawinski. USA Today's For the Wind responded by stating, We've seen some positive filth out of pitchers this season, quoting author Charles Curtis, but this? This, Curtis continued, this is disgusting, absurd, wild, I'm running out of words here. And we are, too, at describing the electric arm of shocking 23-year-old Milwaukee Brewers high-voltage reliever, 
Abner Uribe is our current frequent flyer for this week. For Baseball HQ Radio, I'm Alex Becky at BaseballHQ.com. Baseball HQ analyst Alex Becky has his frequent flyer comment here on Baseball HQ Radio every week. Now it's time for extra innings, but I've already done the news, I've already done the minor league minute, so I figure you've heard enough from me already. I'll have my extra innings commentary here on Baseball HQ Radio again next week. And that's Baseball HQ Radio for Friday, August the 11th. Thanks very much for taking the time to download and listen to show number 30 of the 2023 Fantasy Baseball season. I also want to thank our guest experts for this Friday full edition, Ariel Cohen from Rotographs, the Beat the Shift podcast, and the APC player projection and valuation systems. Ariel is a fine fantasy baseball manager, a terrific analyst, great with the numbers, and always a fun guy for a conversation. I also want to thank our regular commentators from BaseballHQ.com, the best fantasy baseball website in the business. Our frequent flyer commentator was Baseball HQ analyst Alex Becky, and our minor league minute commentator for this week was me, Patrick Davitt, and the host of Baseball HQ Radio. I hope to see you on the BaseballHQ.com subscriber forums. Remember, you can stay in contact with Baseball HQ on Facebook and on our Twitter feed at BaseballHQ. You can also follow my personal Twitter feed, at Patrick Davitt, where you'll always be the first to know when a new podcast is available. Please tell your friends about Baseball HQ Radio, and take a second to go to Apple Podcasts, Google Pods, Pocket Cast, Spotify, wherever you catch your pods, and leave Baseball HQ Radio a good review and a five-star rating. That really helps us find new listeners, and new listeners help us keep the podcast going. If your pod getter of choice doesn't find Baseball HQ Radio, please let me know about that or anything else on your mind by emailing bhqradio, all one word, at gmail.com. And remember, if you're listening to Baseball HQ Radio via the Stitcher podcast app, they're shutting down later this month, so you will need to find another pod getter to keep getting your Baseball HQ Radio weekly goodness. You can go with the big category-crushing oligopolists at Apple or Spotify, or you can support one of the smaller independent podgetters. I like PocketCast. It's my podgetter of choice. It works really well. Thanks again for listening. We'll be back again next Friday with another Friday full edition featuring Paul Sporer from Fangraphs and the Sleeper in the Bust podcast. Then on August 25th, be sure to join us for Nick Pollock from PitcherList.com. And on September 1st, we'll have Eric Longenhagen, prospects expert from Fangraphs. Plus, every Friday full edition has our news analysis and Baseball HQ commentaries. That's Paul Sporer on next Friday's full edition of the podcast with Fantasy Baseball Intelligence for Winners. It is Baseball HQ Radio. We'll talk with you again on Friday. And for now, so long. Baseball HQ Radio is a weekly free podcast available through iTunes and other podcast aggregators or directly from BaseballHQ.com, where we have an archive of past shows as well. Just look for the HQ Radio microphone logo on the right side of the BaseballHQ.com homepage. Baseball HQ Radio is a production of the USA Today Sports Media Group. The opinions expressed on Baseball HQ Radio are those of the individual speaking and not necessarily those of the USA Today Sports Media Group. The program is produced and edited by Patrick Davitt. Just going to run this dog to see if we can find any type of uh, human remains that are left. Listen to Where Secrets Go to Die, The Disappearance of Derek Hennigan. 
From the Detroit Free Press, a new podcast set in the woods of Michigan's Upper Peninsula. Available on Apple, Spotify, Freep.com, or wherever you get your podcasts.